and welcome to Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession with myself, Alex Gill, and Ginny Carlin, as we take a look at one of the most iconic out-of-service aircraft that had a pretty unique role on today's episode. We are all about the Nimrod. It's been a bit of an old Mav Geek week, really, hasn't it, Al? I mean, I still haven't quite gotten over the fact that we spoke to Noel Phillips he of the ancient airliners travel uh, it was just fantastic loved love love that what else has been going on for you yeah nov was absolutely incredible and well you know we were talking about the f-35 last week and actually uh, the news was just the other day uh, that they actually have recovered uh, the jet because they were looking for it for, for a pretty long time and now they can officially say that the jet has been found which is really good because there are a few other people interested in looking for it i think oh but um, there's a couple of things that have occurred to me about this and it's great news that they've they've found it but you know one of the big things of course when you're talking about aircraft crashing and it's everyone's first thought and that is how are the crew because i remember when i saw that headline break and i thought i really hope that the the pilot uh, has, has managed to escape and that kind of news doesn't always come out straight away it, it's always the you know the next time you see the story normally when people have had a bit more time to find out what's going on but it, it was so great to see that the pilot did manage to eject from that and they don't always so we've got to uh, really you know keep that at the forefront of our minds but then the other thing of course is just how staggeringly uh, expensive to, to you and me that these aircraft cost and then you think they've ended up in the sea and it it kind of stings a little bit what was interesting that comes out of this story is the the idea that they actually, when they're procuring new jets and equipment, I know at DSCI we were talking a lot about uh, the future of uh, aviation and all the drones and technology that's coming in the future in Tempest. It's like, it, it, within the how much money they're going to spend on these jets, because we're hearing how much one F-35 costs in the hundreds of millions kind of bracket, um, they they have built into the, the life of the fleet the fact that they think they will lose one through one thing or another every 30,000 flying hours, which is just... What? Uh, like, so every 30,000 flying hours of the of the fleet of F-35s, they assume that they will lose one, and they cost, like, you know, what, 110 million a pop? <laughs> or something like that. And it, what, what an amazing, staggering amount of money to be having to think about when you are organizing getting a new fleet of aircraft together it's 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 a bit crazy really and unfortunately the thing is with this this is the first kind of big accident with the with the fleet and this was only after around 10,000 flying hours so they need to bank some more time i think in their resilience uh speaking of oh, jet, jets going going to a graveyard uh, you've been very sad more photos of the tristar have come come to light I, I was going to say, Alex, it's been a kind of a bit of a yin and yang Mav Geek week for me because on one hand, uh, I've been, and I've, I've shown you the pictures, watching the skies from over San Diego and seeing five Hawker Hunters uh, just, you know, trading around in the San Diego Bay, loving that we've got to get them on. And then the yang is the photos that some I found on one of the L1011 TriStar Facebook groups of the former RAF fleet at Bruntingthorpe just looking very sad and very sorry and some of them unfortunately very chopped up as well what what makes me oh, sad about these dear. photos is there's one shot that you've shown me where they're there's two like facing each other and then there's another one like turned away and it's like they're just looking at each other really sadly you know they're just there like yeah. mm, I'm, having a, I'm having a bad day and then i was like yeah me too <laughs> yeah who who is next yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, exactly i mean there's one thing 
that sort of gives me a slight bit of hope. So like the engine cowlings have been taken off. A lot of the engines have been taken out. The doors have just been left open. So, you know, if there's snakes at Bruntingthorpe, like there is at the Boneyard in Arizona, they're going to yeah. be in those dry stars. Uh, but there's a couple that still got their engines covered. Yeah, I noticed so that. So I'm thinking, mm, I wonder if one is being saved, which will be absolutely fantastic. But how sad to see, for me, just the most almost like an art deco looking plane, just a beautiful beast, uh, all looking very, very sorry for themselves at the moment at Bruntingthorpe. If anybody's got a spare few hundred thousand pounds, please, please buy one and get it flying again. They need a wash more than anything, really, don't they? <laughs> looking at them. But interestingly, the ones that's got the covers on, the number two engine, the top tail one, doesn't. It's really strange. I know, it is very strange. I really like the picture as well of the one where you're staring straight into the number two engine. Yeah, the top one. At the top. Yeah, yeah. 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 Number two. Yeah. Number two. The number two. We engine. learned that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we did. St staring straight into that. Um, really quickly as well, I saw a advert for, I think it's in Thailand, uh, a restaurant that's in an old L1011, mm. uh, just converted into a beautiful, like, high-class restaurant. And that's cool. They've put, a, they've put a light in that engine number two, so it looks oh. really, really funky, really nice. And I, and I think there's something in turning turning these kind of uh, old big jets into venues or restaurants. So, you know, in Gibraltar, there's the, the Sunborn Hotel, which is just a big old kind of static boat that now lives permanently in, in, in the dock. And it's like, it's never going to sail anywhere again, but it's it's a, it's a, it's a hotel and it floats and, it, and it's fantastic. It's like, I think turning big old aircraft into a bar into a restaurant into like it's really interesting and very cool and there's a lot of history there and i think more of this should happen around the world and uh, you know up and down the country because there's so many that go to waste that actually we could i guess it got just cost so much money that's the problem <laughs> yeah Anyway, uh, Al, who have we got coming up today? Uh, so on the podcast today, we're going to be hearing from Flight Lieutenant Andy Bell, who is based at RAF Rise Norton. He's currently uh, a captain on the A400M, uh, but he didn't join the RAF uh, originally to become a pilot. He wanted to, uh, but as he tells us uh, when, when we spoke to him, he actually ended up joining on the Nimrod, which is an aircraft that we've been wanting to talk about for a long time on the podcast. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Flight Lieutenant Andy Bell to tell us about his time on the Nimrod. Yeah, well, it was it's a long time ago, so I'm going to really have to dig deep on this one, but uh, it was just over 25 years ago. I actually applied to be a pilot. I was 18 at the time, and I was unsuccessful at that point, but they they saw something in me and said that they would offer me uh, a slot as airman aircrew, and I had no idea what that was at the time, but I took it anyway because it was a route into the Air Force and the careers office advised, you know, don't, don't turn something down, it's still flying. And so I did. And so I pitched up on day one at Cranwell a week after my 19th birthday. And they asked me, what I, you know, why have I, why have I joined the Air Force and what am I going to go off to do? To which point I said, I have no idea. I applied to be a pilot and they sent me here. <laughs> so I did my first 12 weeks kind of fact-finding what I was actually going to go and do, completely blind as to the job I was going to go, go and do. And then after a, years of, uh, a year of professional training, then they moved me up to Kinloss uh, onto the Nimrod where I spent six amazing years with 201 Squadron, classed them as my university years. Most of my mates were at university at the time, uh, and I joined the Air Force instead. Uh, so they're my university years, and an absolute blast at Kinloss. Wow. Um, on promotion, I, I moved south to St. Morgan to work in an intelligence facility with the U.S. Navy uh, at St. Morgan. I did three more years there, and then I was picked up for commission. I'd spent many, many years trying to get into the cockpit still, applying for pilot, and eventually I think they gave in. 
and said, yeah, we'll have you. Um, I went initially to Rotary. I, I did three years with the Puma on 33 Squadron. Uh, I was then offered a fixed wing crossover to go and fly the Shadow. So I flew Shadow out of Waddington for four years. Uh, and then eventually sort of family needs led me to, to want to move back down to the south of England. And Bryce Norton was on offer and the A400 was on offer. And that's where I find myself now. That's amazing because so many uh, pilots at Bryce that I speak to on the air transport fleet, especially on the A400, often come from the Herc world or somewhere already within that kind of Bryce air transport system. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that you also were rotary and shadow, you know, it's just like you've got such a rich aviation history within the Air Force, which I think is actually quite unique. It's, no, it's nomadic, uh, jack of all trades, master of none, some people say. <laughs> Uh, but I, I like to think it's just given me a, a bit more of a diverse outlook on, on defence and, and the job. Hopefully you can sort of add little bits in here and there from your previous previous units that all adds up to something useful. That's what I think. My, my, my peers probably not. I feel like I have to say for the benefit of our listeners, Andy, that you must have a very good skin care routine because you do not look like you've been in the Air Force for 25 years. Trust uh, me. I, I have a face for radio to be fair. Well... Well, me and Alex have made a career out of that, so don't worry. But honestly, when you said you've been in for 25 years, I did not believe that at all. So whoever's doing your skincare is doing a great job. Let me ask you another question about the Nimrod. That is, when you first found out that you were going to be Nimrod crew, what, what did you think about that? Because I know that, you know, people have, diff- have had mixed opinions of the Nimrod. Most people I speak to absolutely loved the aircraft, um, but it wasn't always given an easy uh, time in the press, was it? No, I mean, when I joined, I had very little experience of what Nimrod was. I'd seen it at an air show every now and again and thought, that looks pretty interesting. But I I had zero idea what it did, uh, where it was based. I I, Literally, I joined the Air Force blind, stupidly probably. But when I found out you you go into the Nimrod, you do do your research. And we were lucky enough while we were on training at Cranwell to go and and, and see Kinloss and go and see the Nimrod firsthand before you get your wing and, and, and are posted up there for real. So... That was a great week where we, we really got to, to understand what the job was. And when, when you see a Nimrod in action at low level over the sea uh, for the first time uh, with the guys doing the job that they do and did, yeah, it, it, it's, it's an incredible crew atmosphere, an incredible mission to be part of. So something I didn't realise as well was that the, the Nimrod was based on the old de Havilland Comets, the, the first jetliner. That it was based on that fuselage. I, I never thought of that. When I read about that, uh, I put the two pictures together because I thought, I can't see that at all because obviously the Nimrod had a very distinctive look. You totally can see it though, can't you, when you put them both together? You certainly can. I mean, the Nimrod, like you said, it's a comet, but they've bolted a Bombay on, onto the bottom of it. Uh, a few tweaks to make that work uh, in terms of the aerodynamics. A great big radome on the front for the, for the search water radar. But yeah, basic principles, it's a comet or the vomit comet, as they used to call it. <laughs> and as an aircraft, you know, uh, it was, I think it first flew in the in the 60s. So you were coming into it quite towards the end of its sort of service life already. And what was it like yeah. to, to do the job in the back end of the aircraft? Because doing what it did low level uh, over the ocean, <laughs> I imagine bro, I'd, I'd feel pretty sick, frankly. <laughs> you know, and you've got to kind of head down and concentrate and do what you're doing. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, there's various different roles we did. I was on what they call the, the wet team, the acoustic team. So in, in, in the back, you have um, two sensor teams. A dry team would uh, monitor all the sensors that were above the water, radar, ESM, radios. Uh, and the wet team, which was me, which is all the underwater stuff, the acoustic sensors, the microphones that used to drop uh, via sonobois. 
Um, so that, that was my, my primary job. And as a wetter, you, you could do a few things on board. If you were if you're doing surface reconnaissance, then it was our job to operate the handheld digital cameras. Well, in fact, they were they were wet film cameras when I first started, and they, they progressed to digital. Uh, and that's where you'd be low-level depressurized. And the two bubble windows you see on the side of the aircraft, you used to physically open them up and stick the camera out wow. to take the pictures as you as you went whizzing past the, the boats. So that was that was a wetties, that was a wet a wet man's job. True sort of wet man's job was uh, was was dropping sun boys. Uh, and tracking subsurface contacts uh, with the data that was processed, sent up to the aircraft. And, and you'd find us halfway down the aircraft on the right-hand side, uh, no windows, facing sideways in the dark, uh, listening to oh. bits and squib and, and looking at what people used to assess as barcodes would just come onto the displays. And we'd be able to analyse those barcodes and, and turn them into um, submarine data uh, as to wow. what kind of submarine it was, where it was going, how fast it was going. That's amazing, but the, that amazing. it's just, I mean, what a team, right? What a team effort to make all that kind of come together and, and the crew. How many, how many, how many were, were in a crew for a, for a normal sortie? Uh, it was a 13 man crew. So we had uh, two drivers with an air engineer at the front, two navigators, one, um, what they call a tactical navigator. He would fight the aircraft, uh, the routine navigator. He would sort of position it in the sky uh, and get us around the route. We had uh, what they call an air electronics officer, so a commissioned version of the seven operators in the back, and then a four-man dry team and a three-man wet team. That then progressed as the sensors uh, were upgraded to a two-man wet team on some occasions. So it started out as thirteen man, went down to twelve. I've always, I've always, so um, there's a Nimrod on stand at the Air Museum at Cosford, and that was the first time I ever saw one. And I just, I had a look around. I just, I love it. I love the shape of it. I always thought it looked really graceful. You know, it had a big fat top bit and a skinny bottom bit and those <laughs> tiny little engines and it's you know it's probe for refueling was sticking out and i just thought it always looked like a pretty cool aircraft but those little engines actually fascinated me because they do not look anywhere near big enough for the size of the jet you're right they don't and then when you think about that we used to routinely shut two of them down when we were on task over the sea to, to preserve fuel wow as well yeah, they weren't that bad. The, the, the Spay engines—they were—they were—they were pretty good. I said I mentioned to you earlier on they were—they were bloody dirty as well. Though, see what you see a Nimrod take off, you just a big trail of dirt behind it, which I kind of like. But I don't think uh, with the, the current Glasgow conference going on uh, that many people in the world do. <laughs> so I've never—I've never actually seen an aircraft uh, uh, Nimrod in flight. I never saw one take off. Slightly before my time. Have you ever seen one, Ginny? Did you ever? Um, I was just thinking because I was at Aquateri from 2000 to 2003. And I can swear that I saw a Canberra come in to Akrotiri and somebody said to me, oh, no, you won't have done. But I'm pretty sure I did. But I'm sure I must have seen an Imrod come in there. You must have done, because if you're the 2003, that was um, certainly March 2003 was when we pushed into Iraq. We were stationed oh, yes. in I'm pretty sure there were cameras there, and we came through there as well. It's yeah. quite funny saying about that with 2003, because uh, Aki was a great place to be all the time, don't get me wrong. But waking up one morning and going from, you know, quite a quiet airfield and a nice party atmosphere to, oh my gosh, you know, it, it literally happened overnight, a completely full apron of aircraft. I mean, for a spotter like me, it was fantastic, but, you know, it, it was a bit of a shock. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that I, I must have seen an Nimrod and, and flying as well. I saw all sorts of things, but towards the end of, of the Nimrod's service stability, obviously you were on other aircraft by then. Mm. How how did that make you feel? I mean, obviously the, the end of the serviceability of the Nimrod was, was 
a, a, just a really quite a sad time all round with the tragedy that happened and everything just before that. H- how did you feel having having been a part of that Nimrod family? I'd left it by some time at that point, but um, I still had quite close ties with friends on the fleet. And at one point I thought I might even actually be going back up there myself. But I'm being part of something that then goes out of service like that. Uh, like I said, it was my university day. So it's, it's how I grew up in the Air Force. So it's like my early years and my early memories to see it go out of service. With, and so much hard work had been done to, to bring the new variant, which eventually was scrapped. All that hard work just gone to waste. And I, and I went on to work with a couple of guys that were, were uh, deep in that project uh, who were who were really scarred by the whole process, you know, putting all that effort in and then seeing it literally um, recycled on TV after after they they chopped it in the defence review. Yeah, it's pretty it's a pretty sad thing because it's an iconic thing. I mean, it's Cold War Cold War era aircraft. Obviously, they didn't see the need at the time to to put the Mark IV into service, but sad uh, overall, very very sad. But but proud to have played a part in it because you know you're part of history. I'm, I'm crikey, I'm in I'm in museums and photographs now. I'm only forty three, but uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's just, <laughs> yeah, very proud to have, have, have been part of what was. And that won't be repeated again. I mean, obviously they have the the P eight now. That's that's just mm-hmm. taken over on the the maritime patrol role, which is a great a great new chapter for maritime patrol. But it it won't be the same as the Nimrod. It just won't. And for you flying on Nimrods, how how did it feel? How did they handle? I mean, I, I know you obviously weren't the pilot at that point, but you know, did you feel safe on the Nimrod? Did you did it show its age? What what sort of aircraft was it to be a part of? Well, it depends which pilots you have in terms of how how well it handled. <laughs> but no, you just trust the guys at the front to do their job. Look, just like the guys at the moment trust me to do mine. I think. But uh, over the sea, bumping around over the waves, it could get quite, yeah, quite emotional at times. I was fortunate never to ever be airsick, but there were plenty of guys on the cruise that were, and they used to go through that every time, but used, but used to carry on. Uh, so it's a strange environment to fly in. As a first job in the Air Force, well, f- first kind of, you know, that's your big first job to go and do, and you're going low level down, down by the ocean quite a lot at pretty high speed. I mean... And I was just picturing you saying, you know, hanging hanging out of a window with a camera. I mean, that's just that's cool, right? That's you say you compare. You keep saying it, you know, it was your uni, university days, and when you compare it to what people at uni would have been doing, I mean, no one's yeah. thinking, anywhere near that exciting, right? And you get no. to have all the kind of the fun that comes around being with the squadron, being with a group of mate. You kind of get a lot of that experience. That's the same of going to university, but you got to do it hanging out at the back of a high speed aircraft. Yeah. It was great. It was great fun. Great teams to be part of. The you know, I've still got you know dear friends that I was on a crew with back then. Yeah, friends for life. You just, you just build great relationships because you have you have to you have to operate as a part of a team on an aircraft like that. One person doesn't do their job, and that, you might as well have not got airborne. So it was yeah a great a great atmosphere and an environment to work in. So yeah, but like you say, there's not many people got the opportunity to do that at my age. So yeah, it was pretty exciting. Andy, how was the, your time on the Nimrod? And then you were saying, you know, you've worked on other aircraft as well. How has that all kind of led you to the place that you are now? I suppose I made all my, well, I'm probably still making mistakes, but most of my mistakes as a youngster on the Nimrod, um, it just gives you a, a good grounding to, and a good level of experience to take onto your next platform. You'll always take experience from one platform to the next. And, and sometimes you don't know what that, what that level of experience will be. But I went from I went from Nimrod and then the long way round to to pilot via rotary wing first, and then onto onto the shadow. And most of the shadow crews were taken from 
from the Nimrod guys. So we were doing a very similar job in terms of surveillance from from one platform to the other. So it was very nice to be able to then strap yourself into the front of an airplane, knowing exactly what the guys in the back are doing because you've physically done that job yourself. So I know that you're you're going to be you're leaving the Air Force really really soon actually, and you're about to to go on your your last sortie as an A400M captain out to Cyprus for for the last time, which is probably somewhere you've spent a lot of time. Um, yeah. When you land for the very last time back here at Bryce after that, I mean, are you kind of preparing yourself mentally for that? What's going through your head? Or do you, do you think you're just going to kind of do it and, and think about it afterwards? I have no idea. Uh, you, you've just <laughs> thought into my head. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I'm prepared. I'm, you know, I'm mentally prepared to leave the Air Force. I mean, I have been ever since I, since I pushed the button to leave earlier this year, but I haven't really thought about what I'm going to do when I hit the tarmac for the last time, but maybe want to go around and think about. No, I don't know. I imagine it will be quite emotional, actually. No, no, I'll never, never fly in the Air Force again. I'm, I'm going to go and make the most of uh, the three, three and a half weeks I think we've got in Cyprus over Christmas, New Year. I'm going to make the most of most of the flying and enjoy it as best I can. But um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't ex- know exactly how I'm going to feel. Maybe I do need to prepare myself. Mm. I promise not to cry though. Nice one, Alex. Upsetting our guests. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, for me, it would, it would be, you know, be, it would be going through my head. So, <laughs> so that's what made me think about it. But I, I just yeah. think it's great. Uh, you know, when we met before and we were talking about the A400, and, and you told me that you, you started uh, where you did. I know you wanted to join as a pilot, but are you pleased that you didn't? Are you pleased your Air Force career went the way it did and you got that experience on the Nimrod looking back? Because at the time, obviously, you, you want to join up to do something and you don't get it. It's quite gutting. But actually, it you got there in the end and it, it gave you a whole set of experiences you might not have had otherwise. Yeah, I, I, I don't believe I'd, I'd want to uh, turn back the clock and have it any any other way at all. I think it was, it was a great grounding to join the military. Certainly a great understanding of, of what, you know, rear crew, rear crew do. That, that you know... I pump that into my my job every every, every time I fly. Now I, I I try and put myself in the position that I used to be in in the back of an aircraft and, and the effect that the actions at the front have on 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 crews. Um, I, I try and I try and move that across every every time I go flying. Uh, so I, I don't think I'd have it I have it any other way. I'd, I'd, if I turn the clock back, I'd, I'd go the exactly the same path. One or two mistakes that I won't talk about on here that I'd rather not do again. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I treasure the, the, the route I've taken to the Air Force. It's given, taken me a lot of great places. I've met a lot of great people. So something that we do is always decide um, on, on this podcast if we're going to, we call it Kemble it or keep it. And as you probably know, Campbell is a big Air Force graveyard and, you know, civil aviation graveyard as well. So we decide if we want to keep the aircraft or send it off to, uh, you know, the Cotswold Airport for decommissioning. And I, I, would, I would, obviously you would, I imagine keep the Nimrod. I would keep it. I think. It's yeah, great. definitely. I think if the Mark IV would come into service, it would still be it would still be fine today. And mm. um, it's nice to have. I'm sure the guys are very not, uh, happy to have a nice shiny 737 that they're flying around in now uh, on, on the P8. But it's very shiny. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if they wax it, but it it does look. You know, like when you compare it to like the Voyager or something, it's matte, and the well, X1 is matte, and that's shiny. <laughs> up to up, up that way and, and well you, you wouldn't have seen the nimrod go through the wash but they've got another wash up at lossy mouth for the pa so when they go low level in all the the salt um salt spray whatever that they go through uh they, they wash that off so they literally drive through a great big car wash on the way back in so maybe that's why it's shiny i don't know <laughs> no, it was just it was a joy to be part of like i say it's out of service now so it's nice to have been part of something that that's uh, such so prominent in Air Force history did something that nobody else did. You know, being up at Kinloss, mm-hmm. flying the Nimrod, you were in a, a completely sort of almost isolated team of people that just that just got it 
and got on and had a great time together. And then, you know, everybody on camp was focused on Nimrod. Everything was Nimrod and we, we just did it. It, it was nice to be part of that. Well, I absolutely loved talking about the Nimrod. And just to say, as Andy comes to leaving the Air Force, just want to, from both of us, wish you, Andy, the absolute best of everything in your new career. Absolutely. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us uh, by emailing mavgeeks at bfbs.com. Ginny, it's so close to Christmas. What have we got coming up next week? (laughs) I'm so full of Christmas cheer because next week we are going to be tracking santa with norad <laughs> yes. oh my gosh that is that is everyone's dream at christmas to track santa with norad and we're gonna meet them and chat to them i cannot wait make sure you wear a christmas jumper for next week's episode